following talk is from St. Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington, and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. We're now turning to the part of the service where we look at God's Word together, and we've been in a fantastic little series in the book of Daniel. Dan's uh, note, Simon's going to preach that to us. Uh, surprise, Dan. Uh, Simon's going to come and preach that to us in a second. But before that, uh, Dan and Zoe are going to read to us. If you want to grab this Bible on the season next year, it's in page 895. Daniel chapter 9, 895. And this Dan's going to read to us. Thank you. Reading from Daniel chapter 9 and page 895 of the Church Bibles. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. You, Lord, Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings... Our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, We have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with your righteous acts, 
Turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord, my God, for his holy hill, while I was in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and an understanding. As you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to, to atone for wickedness, to bring in the everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven uh, seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with the streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many of, of, for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will, give, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out to him. Amen. Dan Zoe, thanks so much. Good morning, everyone. I don't know what you made of that, uh, especially the last bit. Um, James is very kindly handing out a handout. Can I just mention, last week, um, some of you noticed that uh, all of the handouts stayed on here throughout my talk, and I completely forgot to give them out. So I, I do apologize for that. I know some of you like to write on them and make notes. If you thought it was just a, a, a sort of a, a decision not to have a handout, no, it wasn't. I just completely forgot to give them out. So I'm sorry. I've given that job to James. Um, as those go around, let's bow our heads and ask for the Lord's help with this passage. Father, thank you so much for every chapter of Daniel so far. Lord, thank you for how dramatic it all has been. 
Thank you, Lord, for the the visions as well and all that they have taught us. And Lord, as we uh, uh, dig into a complex but also wonderful chapter, pray, Lord, that you'd give us insight, that your spirit would be teaching us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. When was the last time that you asked God for forgiveness and really, really deeply felt your need for forgiveness? Really deep down had a sense of your sinfulness, of God's perfection, his holiness, and how much you you must just need forgiving for things that perhaps you're aware of in life. I guess we're... um, we're all quite different. Um, for some of us, maybe, uh, you probably have quite a tender conscience and apologizing for things comes quite naturally. Um, uh, that can be a good thing, I think, sometimes. Uh, it can be a little bit too much of a, a knee-jerk reaction. One of the things that uh, people overseas often say about Brits that's weird about us is that we apologize far more often than a lot of other people around the world. You bump into me and I apologize. Um, or I apologize to you before telling you that you jumped the queue uh, and that sort of thing. Um, I had a roommate at university who, who just seemed to instinctively take that to the extreme. He would apologize after entering a room. He would apologize before leaving a room. He'd apologize before speaking and after speaking and for everything. And you think, sort of, poor guy, we tried to help him. Um, I'm not suggesting a sort of permanent state of groveling uh, is necessarily good for us. But... Perhaps others of us struggle to say sorry, struggle actually to come to God for forgiveness. Maybe we're a little bit less aware of our sinfulness, we haven't sort of considered it very much or it's not been recently in our minds. Maybe we're just a little bit more complacent about what we know is going on in our hearts. Maybe it's harder or rarer for us to feel a a kind of desperate need for God's forgiveness. Maybe we don't tend to apologize much in life. Elton John said, it's a sad, sad situation. Sorry seems to be the hardest word. And maybe that's true for some of us. Um, Maybe some of you, you're in the middle, or it depends from day to day, whether you feel your sin and your need for God's forgiveness. I reckon every Sunday when we say that prayer of confession um, that we so often say, Uh, probably some of us feel it really, really deeply. And for others, it maybe just kind of bounces off us a little bit. We say the the words, but they're very familiar and we may may be a bit distracted. It's not something we particularly engage with or, or feel that much in need of. Daniel in this chapter is going to show us there is incredible blessing in coming to God in confession. There's blessing not just because we need forgiveness, and we absolutely do, so confessing sin is just telling the truth about us, but also because God, it turns out, is so wonderfully willing and ready to bless us with his forgiveness. It is so freeing to come to God and be forgiven, to receive what Jesus came to die to give you. It's a wonderful thing. Total liberation from all of your failings. Total freedom from your past. A clean slate. A fresh start. 
And that's before we even begin to talk about the, the sort of positive joys of a welcome from God and his love and his purpose and his spirit's presence in our lives. So this prayer is going to teach us a lot about confession. And we've deliberately left this Sunday's confession until after the talk so that we can hear the talk first and, and be led, be inspired by Daniel's uh, prayer of confession. It's an amazing prayer. So let's get straight into it. Um, at the beginning, you can see that we joined Daniel in, uh, well, you can't maybe see it in the verse, but it's a very exciting year. Uh, verse 1 says, it's the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. Maybe you remember what this means. Daniel has spent his whole adult life in exile in Babylon, from his teens right through to probably now his 80s, living away from the land of Israel as, as an exile in Babylon. We saw in the first half of Daniel how he was kidnapped by uh, the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, the, the Babylonian king, uh, and served the kings of Babylon. I think we can see on a map... Um, there's a, a, a map that we saw last week, that sort of orange horseshoe bit is the Babylonian Empire, Israel over here on the left, and then Daniel was taken all the way around to the other side. Um, but the Babylonian Empire has just fallen, and uh, the first year under the new Persian Empire, suddenly the map looks like that. Persia has taken over, as we saw last week. Things are changing, the Persians are much kinder to their subjects, um, allowing them to return home and, and rebuild uh, their homes and their cities. But there's something that's getting Daniel particularly uh, excited and prompting him to this prayer. He's been reading the book of Jeremiah in the Bible. And he can see in the book of Jeremiah that the end of exile will come after 70 years. So here's what he must have been reading. Uh, let, we can see a few verses from a couple of places in Jeremiah. First, in chapter 25, it says this, Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, because you've not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I'll completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I'll banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sounds of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and this nation will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So 70 years. That's looking back with that, I guess, quite negative perspective of how the sin of the Israelites had led to God's judgment on them, on their land, and this exile into Babylon. But the other place in Jeremiah that uh, Daniel was perhaps reading... Um, is in chapter 29, which may be familiar to you. It contains words of amazing uh, comfort and promise. Um, so, yes, it says, verse 10, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you'll call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. 
and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Maybe some of those are familiar words that you love. God's plans to prosper his people, to to not harm us, to give us a hope and a future. Those are indirectly true of us, but originally given to the exiles of Israel. People like Daniel, who, uh, and you can imagine how much he might have clung to these promises during those 70 years, uh, knowing that after that the exile would end. And you can you can take 70 as a rough measure, uh, roughly a lifetime, or a combination of two bi- biblical numbers, 7 and 10, which often symbolize completion and uh, long uh, amounts of time with a big number. But actually, it also fits what we know of their history really well. Um, look at this next slide. For Daniel, it was now 66 years since he'd been taken into exile. So 70 is just around the corner. And we know that in the first year of um, the new king of of Persia, this um, declaration was made that people could return home. Or, if you measure it another way, 586 BC was when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. Exactly 70 years later, in 516 BC, is when people have calculated the, the new temple after that was finished in its rebuilding. So it's extraordinary. God's promise of 70 years uh, was exactly uh, fulfilled in history. So Daniel's got his Bible open. He's reading these amazing promises and he turns to God in prayer in response. That is a great thing for us to do, to have our Bibles open and, and respond in prayer to the things that we read. It's great to pray with your Bible open, to pray God's promises. But Daniel doesn't do that with any sense of sort of victory or entitlement or pride of any kind. Um, Because in verse 3, he turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and sackcloth and ashes, which are all marks of humility and and repentance. And uh, so look how, how Daniel prays. There's so much in this prayer. I've sort of drawn three parts to it that I'm just going to touch on briefly. Um, Look at the first few verses, verse 4 to 6. He confessed their rejection of God's word. You can see what Daniel thought of God in verse 4. He's the great and awesome God. He keeps his covenant of love with those who love him. Daniel knows that God is wonderful. That combination of God being great and awesome and also full of covenant love. When you speak to God, remember those things. They're both true. He's great and awesome and full of love. He's greater than we could possibly imagine and more loving than we could possibly dream. But Daniel knows God's people have been very different to their God. Uh, Verse 5, he says, We have sinned and done wrong. Actually, in these verses, the the pile-up of words for sin is huge. Sinned, done wrong, been wicked, rebelled, turned away, not listened. And just continues that way through the prayer. And it's really striking just how unhesitating this is. Daniel doesn't, for a second attempt, to minimize the sin. 
He doesn't attempt to blame shift. He doesn't attempt to make excuses. I think these days we've become quite good at spotting uh, Weasley apologies, haven't we? Um, from politicians or corporations. I'm sorry if somebody was upset. I'm sorry if you thought I was in the wrong. I'm sorry, but circumstances forced my hand. We're sorry if you felt that our high standards were not met on this particular occasion and the staff member concerned has received training to ensure even better service in the future. There's none of that sort of equivocation or watering down. That's an important lesson for us, I think. When we come to God and, and confess and seek his forgiveness... Are we tempted, in our own head at least, to kind of water down our sins a bit, to deflect or to sort of make excuses for ourselves in some way? Doing that is kind of pointless, isn't it? We're talking to God. He knows everything. He knows where there are mitigating circumstances. He knows where there are excuses. We, we don't need to try to defend ourselves in doing that. Whatever is our fault, he already knows. There's no point in trying to disguise things from God or try to hide anything from him. There's just amazing freedom in, in being like this, in being like Daniel is here. Just confess. Just tell God. If, if you know there's things you've done, that you ought to go to God and, and say sorry, just Just tell him. Tell him you know it's wrong. Tell him you know you've sinned. Actually, that's a really, really basic step for Christians, isn't it? All of us need to be able to say, Lord, I've sinned. I need your forgiveness. That is part of approaching God for the first time and receiving his forgiveness through Jesus. All of us need to be able to say that. All of us need to continue to be able to say that throughout our lives. In particular, Daniel confesses they'd been rejecting God's word, his commands and his laws in verse 5, and his prophets in verse 6. Rejecting God's word, the things that he has spoken to us in scripture, um, is serious. It's not okay. Remember, maybe there's things in your life uh, where you, you, if you're honest with yourself, you know you've been ignoring or sort of pushing away or rejecting the things that you know God says to you in the Bible. Maybe a, a great way to respond to this passage this morning would be to take some time today, talk to God about that. Confess the things about him or things that he said that you've been rejecting or ignoring or, or, or pushing away. Ask his forgiveness in the way that Daniel does so honestly, so freely. And the second part of the prayer, um, have a look down at verses 7 to 14. Daniel, um, I've summarized this as he accepted the rightness of God's judgment. He feels a sense of shame. He says he and his people are covered in shame. He knows that this is the reason ultimately for the exile. The sin of the Israelites is why God allowed Babylon to attack in the first place. It's why Daniel was taken into exile. It's why he was away from his home, spending his whole life in Babylon. It's because, in verse 7, of 
our unfaithfulness to you. He knows God's character in verse 9. He knows God is merciful and forgiving. He's been trusting in the merciful God all the way through his life in exile. But he knows in verse 11 that the Israelites had turned away and kept on turning away. All Israel, he says. So he's not just blaming other people. Throughout this prayer, he says, we, we have sinned, not they over there have sinned. He's not just sort of blaming other people. Oh, we had bad leaders, or we had bad prophets, we had bad kings. Well, yeah, they did. He mentions those. But throughout, he says, we. Daniel's confession is corporate and personal. Sin is very often corporate and personal. There are sort of cultural sins that we can all participate in. There are individual sins Uh, that might be part of those cultural sins or or different things. And Daniel knows that the Bible promised long ago that sin, in Israel in particular, would lead to exile. Uh, It's everywhere through the Bible, actually, when when you realize this. Um, Daniel mentions the law of Moses in verse 11. You can read in Deuteronomy 28 and 31 how God promised curses, including exile, uh, when Israel sinned. Moses sings a song about how terrible the nation of Israel is going to be after he dies. Lovely song. And then um, uh, says that after he dies, he knows that they would surely turn away and become corrupt and go into exile. So this this is Moses. This is right at the beginning. Even before they came into the land, God is saying that this is going to happen. Your sin is going to lead to this exile. And when the exile itself is reported historically in the books of two kings and two chronicles, it's really clear, it's stated very clearly, this is because of the sin of the nation. Daniel is not arguing with this. He says in verse 7 and verse 14 that the Lord is righteous in all he does. He knows God only ever does what is right. Now, as we talk about all this, it's so important to remember that the Israelites were no different to anyone else in the world. They were not chosen because they were better than other people in the world. They were not chosen because they were worse than other people in the world. They are human beings just like us. Romans 3 and 4 is very clear. God has no favorites. It's as if, with Israel in the Old Testament... God took a sample, like a sort of worked example, a sample of humanity, and showed what we're like by giving us the law, by giving Israel the law on behalf of everyone to, to show what human nature is like, how we reject it, how we walk away from it, how their sin would lead to judgment. So if we look at the whole world and we wonder why the whole world is fallen, and is full of sin and evil, and why the Bible talks about a coming judgment, we should be like Daniel. We mustn't object. It's it's the same principle as it was with Israel. Their sin led to exile. Our sin leads to this fallen world and ultimately to God's judgment. We mustn't think when we hear that that we've spotted God doing something wrong or being unfair. On judgment day, God will do what is right. He always does. We need to just accept his 
verdict, realize that it's right. We are all sinners. The Bible says that over and over and over again. You, me, everyone in the world, we're in trouble unless our sin is forgiven. Rightly so. We need to know that. Last bit of the prayer. In verses 15 to 19, he pleaded on the basis of God's mercy. Daniel asks God in verse 16 to turn away his anger, to show mercy. And it's worth listening into the desperation and the pleading in verses 17 to 19. Just hear the, the sense of pleading. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act for your sake, my God. Do not delay for your city and your people bear your name. Do you ever plead with God with that kind of depth of passion? I think it's good for us if we do. Daniel could have sort of taken God for granted. Um, He knew that God always keeps his promises. He knew that God said it would be 70 years. He could have just said, well, Lord, you said 70 years. Keep your promise. But he knows the reason for it all. He knows how deep and terrible the problem of sin is. And he pleads, not hopelessly, not in in a sort of desperation of not being sure whether God would forgive, But knowing that God is full of mercy, knowing that he is this great and loving God who keeps his covenant of love, maybe as a Christian you know that Jesus has died for your sin. You know that is wonderful. You know that God has promised forgiveness to you through Jesus' death on the cross. That is great to know that and have great assurance of that. But let's not take it for granted. Let's Plead for God's forgiveness. Let's bear our hearts and souls to God. Because that shows we really get it. That shows we really get how much we need the cross of Jesus, where our sins are forgiven. It shows we understand the depth of our sin and the sorrow that our sins bring to God, the the terrible price that Jesus paid on the cross, the, the cost of that, that shows how much he loves us. How merciful he really, really is. Don't take that for granted. Let's not take that for granted as individuals or or as a church. Let's come to God like Daniel, week by week, telling God about our sin with openness and honesty and pleading, oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, have mercy. Knowing that he will. Knowing that Jesus proves that. Knowing that he delights to but not taking him and his amazing grace for granted. That is Daniel's prayer. It's an amazing, beautiful prayer of confession. And we'll come back uh, in a few minutes and and join together in a prayer of confession inspired by um, Daniel here. But I wanted to spend uh, a few minutes at the end on God's answer. You can flip over the handout 
uh, to see where we're going. I hope you haven't been distracted by the, uh, the diagram. Um, please ignore it until we get to it, because you could just go down a black hole with that. Um, so God's answer starts with uh, an amazing scene in verse 20 to 23. Verse 20. Uh, Daniel says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I'd seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. So here is Gabriel again, the angel that Daniel spoke to in chapter 8, the same angel that we know will come hundreds of years later to announce to Mary that the Messiah was going to be born. So here is Gabriel, hundreds of years beforehand, and we see he's kind of got the same task, preparing for the coming of Jesus. We'll, we'll, see, we'll see that in a second. So verse 22, um, Gabriel instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I've now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I've come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. I pause on that for a second, because it's a beautiful picture of prayer and God responding to prayer. When was Daniel's prayer heard and answered? Immediately. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out. Do you realize you always, always, always have God's attention? Always. He's always ready to hear our prayers, to listen, to respond. My grandma used to talk about nattering to God while she potted around the kitchen, doing the cooking and the washing up. I used to think that was a bit quaint. I think, now I think it's wonderful. My grandma understood there's, there's no delay. There's no distance between us and God that means prayers take time to get there. It's not like we have to sort of put them in the post or in a rocket and fire them off into space. Or... We may not be able to see God, but he's there all the time. We so easily slip into thinking of God as aloof or distracted or too far away or maybe closed off in an uh, office full of red tape with a pile of paperwork, too busy, too important to deal with the likes of me. The picture in the Bible is God always, always knowing what we need before we ask, always being our loving Heavenly Father, if we trust him, who, who never leaves, never abandons us, invites us to cast our anxieties onto him because he cares for us. Gabriel says to Daniel, you are highly esteemed. I don't think that's just Daniel. God loves us deeply. He's shown that through Jesus. So, Let's be encouraged by this amazing picture of how immediately God hears and responds to prayer. Even if we don't get a, an angel coming to explain the situation to us, God still hears, God still knows, God still responds. Now, Gabriel's message to Daniel in verses 24 to 27. Maybe you are aware that this is one of the most debated, no, most no, notoriously tricky, argued over, obsessed over uh, passages in the whole Bible. You can read a hundred different people's interpretations and get a hundred slightly different views on how it is uh, fulfilled. I feel like I've done that recently. Um, 
people right back to the early church have been saying this is tricky to figure out. Um, so please um, receive the following with a health warning. This is, as I said a few weeks ago, my current best efforts to figure this out. Um, and whatever view I take, inevitably there are more people out there who disagree with me than agree, because it's just like that. Um, it's totally fine if you look at these verses and conclude something a bit different. Very happy to chat about that. But before we finish, just in a couple of minutes, let's give it a go. Actually, I think some things are really clear. So, look at verse 24. This is the promise. This is the kind of summary verse in verse 24. 77s are decreed for your people. Okay, stop there. 77s. That's one thing on which there's a fair bit of agreement. Um, the 70 years of exile are over. That's in the past for Daniel. But Gabriel is saying something really important is going to happen in the future in 70 times 7 years. That seems to be uh, 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 a, a point of reasonable agreement amongst people. Um, so there's something in the future in 70 times 7 years. So 490 years years. Reasonably clear so far? Ish? <laughs> so now look at the rest of verse 24, and as I read it, think about who this must surely be about. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Who do we think did all those things? It's, it is the Sunday school answer. I think it is Jesus. <laughs> um, who finished transgression and put an end to wickedness? Jesus did, dying on the cross. He's the one who, as he died, cried out, it is finished. He was dying for our sins. Who atoned for wickedness? It's Jesus. He died to atone for us, to bring us back into relationship with God after we'd turned away from him. Who brought in everlasting righteousness? Jesus did. Only Jesus can make you and me righteous forever. He takes our sin away. He gives us his righteousness. That's the, the, the cross in a nutshell. That swap. Jesus giving us his righteousness as he takes away our sin. Who sealed up vision and prophecy? I think, in other words, who fulfilled all the visions and prophecies of Scripture? Jesus. All of the lines of the Old Testament point to him. All of God's promises, um, as Hebrews says, are yes in him. Who anointed the most holy? Well, if all the other things are Jesus, I think it probably makes sense to say this is Jesus as well. Um, the one who came and cleansed the temple the one who then ultimately came to replace the temple as God's dwelling place on earth. So at its most simple, if nothing else about this end bit of Daniel makes sense, hear this, God's answer to Daniel's confession and to our confession is Jesus. Jesus is the one who came to die for our sins for Daniel's sin, for Israel's sin, for your sin, for my sin, for the world's sins. Jesus is at the center of the Bible. That, I think, is absolutely clearly what Gabriel is pointing forwards to. 
Everything ultimately ends there with Jesus and his death for us. So that's the summary. 490 years, then Jesus will we'll deal with sin forever. What about the detail? Okay, let's go really fast now. Um, verse 25 to 27 seems to give some kind of a timeline. Um, you can really go into black holes on this, um, believe me. There's even an influential view written by uh, a guy called Sir Robert Anderson in 1894, which has influenced a lot of people's reading of this. Sir Robert Anderson was the head of the Met Police um, and in charge of the investigation of Jack the Ripper. Um, uh, you can get into dreadfully complex stuff, uh, sort of following uh, details of what he said and what all sorts of other people say. You can get stuck in prophetic gaps and weird length prophetic years that are different to real years and differences between Gregorian and Julian and lunar and solar calendars. And almost every major event in history or every significant leader, somebody out there has said, well, this is a fulfillment of Daniel 9. Um, so <laughs> beware, beware the stuff you can find. Um, as I've said, I think this is clearly about Jesus. I think it's a timetable that predicts when Jesus would come and die for our sins. So really briefly, verses 25 to 27 seem to break these 77, 70 lots of seven years into three chunks. So you get seven sevens, and during the first seven sevens, uh, it seems that Jerusalem is being rebuilt. Then you get 62 sevens, and that seems to be a kind of a long wait. And then you get one seven right at the end, uh, which completes it and makes 70 sevens, and loads of stuff happens in that one seven right at the end. Lots of things to do with the Messiah coming, and uh, sacrifices and the destruction of the temple. Now, we know that that sequence is exactly what happened in history. We know that um, if, if, if the sevens are just symbolic and don't talk about actual dates in the calendar, um, and some would argue we should stop there, what we do have in history is a kind of shortish time, a generation or so of rebuilding of uh, Jerusalem under Nehemiah, then uh, a long time of waiting, uh, a, a great big long gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then a sort of climactic time where Jesus comes and all these things are fulfilled. Does that make sense as a sort of general timeline? But given that those 70 years were so precise, maybe the 490 years are precise as well, um, people try all sorts of things with this. Um, there is one scheme that's out of the many proposed makes some sort of sense to me. I've put it on your handout to have a look at. If it makes sense, it's potentially amazing. <laughs> if you look at the diagram, uh, I've put some dates on it. Uh, if the command that goes out, that kind of sets the clock ticking... Uh, is um, the command to rebuild the city uh, in 457 BC. Then you get 49 years until Nehemiah finished the work, which fits with how long it, the historian Josephus said it would take, take until 408 BC. Then you get a really long wait, which takes us to 26 BC. Uh, no, sorry, AD. 26 AD. Did I put BC on the handout already? I hope I put AD. Um, and 26 AD 
is roughly when Jesus' ministry, his public ministry began with his baptism. So uh, the anointed one, the anointing of the Messiah, 26 AD, that would fit. Um, then uh, half a seven is talked about, uh, which would take us to about 30 AD, which historians reckon roughly is uh, the death of Jesus and the tearing of the temple curtain, uh, which kind of marks the end of the role of the temple in God's plans. Those sacrifices in the temple replaced by Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, and, and that sort of later led to the destruction of the temple by Rome under Titus in 70 AD. Maybe that's the prince that's to come and the destruction that's talked about there. And then the last half of the last seven, that would take us to 33 AD. People have said, well, maybe that's when uh, the, the Christians in Jerusalem were persecuted and sent out after the martyrdom of Stephen to turn from um, just taking the gospel to Israel. So this is the, 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 the end of the, the sort of season for God just dealing with Israel and taking it right out into the world. I don't know. Maybe that works. It's not straightforward. There are various details in the passage that make you scratch your heads. There are various bits of translations that uh, are tricky to figure out. Uh, it is not straightforward. But even if some of the details are, are tricky, isn't it incredible that 490 years after the command to rebuild Jerusalem, roughly, Jesus came? That's amazing. That is amazing. We know there was a lot of expectation that the Messiah would come at around the first century or so, uh, BC, AD. So this had led to an expectation of the Messiah. It, it, it's potentially an incredible, amazing prophecy. So I'll leave that with you uh, to figure out uh, your own details. What I want to do then is, having looked at all of that, take us back to this confession and to lead us in a time of confession. We're going to say a prayer of confession together. We're going to respond to that in song. And um, just... As we prepare ourselves for confession, I try not to use my kids too often in illustrations these days because the older they get, the less comfortable it is for them. But um, this is about when Joel, our oldest, was, was very young, about three, I reckon. Um, he and I were in a cafe in a park. He threw an absolute screaming tantrum, sort of off the scale, his worst ever sort of thing. Um, I think it was partly my fault. I let him have one of those blue um, uh, slush puppies. Always a bad idea. If you're a parent, avoid the blue slush puppies. Um, he was so awful, and it was such a tiny cafe that we had to just ditch the food and leave. And um, uh, after we left, he suddenly just sort of flipped out of the tantrum, realized how awful he'd been, and got really quiet and upset. And he said, he said sorry lots. And then at one point, he said, maybe you should just leave me there and started crying. And for once in his life, I could see he really meant it. And it was quite a moment. And I had this lovely opportunity, that's not quite like anything I've had before or since, to sweep him up into my arms and give him a, a huge hug and say to him, I would never do that. I'd never do that. I love you so much. I'll always forgive you. I'll always love you. You don't need to worry about me 
stopping loving you. I never will. And through his kind of three-year-old tears, he was sort of saying the same to me. I love you so much, Daddy. And it was one of those amazing moments. And one of those unforgettable moments. And the Lord wants us, wants you to come to him and cling to him with that same sense of relief and freedom and love. To know that even as we say sorry, he is sweeping us up in his arms and saying, I've given you Jesus. I've done it. I've put an end to it. Your sin is finished. There's no barrier between us anymore. Jesus, the anointed one, has taken away our sin and given us everlasting righteousness. So with that in mind, let's um, pray this prayer of confession together. And let's mean it. <laughs> let's bow our heads and pray. And the words... I hope they're going to come up on the screen. Together. Almighty God, long-suffering and of great goodness, I confess to you, I confess with my whole heart my neglect and forgetfulness of your commandments, my wrongdoing, thinking and speaking, the hurts I have done to others and the good I have left undone. O God, forgive me, for I have sinned against you, and raise me to newness of life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's pray as the band come up to lead us. Father, thank you so much that we can pray those words and know that you have instantly heard them and know that you know us better than we know ourselves. You know us inside out. Father, thank you so much that you have already sent Jesus. Thank you that for, for what Daniel was still in the future, for us, is wonderfully past as a, a fact of history that can never be undone, that Jesus has died for our sins, taken them away forever. Thank you that we can come to you in confession and know that you have already provided and given us that wonderful answer of Jesus and your love for us in him. Help us to know the assurance of that forgiveness today. In Jesus' name.